Welcome to the AMR Studio, a podcast dedicated to the multidisciplinary research on antimicrobial resistance, hosted by the Uppsala Antibiotic Center. I'm Jenny Jagman. And I am Eva Garmendia. Welcome to this episode of the AMR Studios. We're happy to have you back if you've listened to us before and happy that you joined us if it's your first time. Hope you enjoy it. For this episode, we're going to feature an interview with Dr. Sophie Helene that Ava was able to do when she visited us for a seminar for the UAC on November 8th in 2018. Uh, she is currently a senior lecturer at Imperial College London, and she came to give us give a talk on persisters, which is her main field of research, and the one of the things that was talked about in the interview. So I hope you enjoy it as much as I did, and we'll see you back later. Thank you so much for being with us today, Dr. Helene. Could you please introduce yourself to our audience? So hi, Eva. Thank you very much for inviting me today. I work in London in the MRC Center for Molecular Bacteriology of Infection, and I study salmonella. Could you please tell us a little bit on what specific field of science are you working on and maybe a little bit of your path to that? How did you get to the place you are working on right now? I'm a bacteriologist and I'm interested in host-pathogen interactions mostly. So how the pathogen and the host interact, uh, which is important to understand the outcome of an infection, whether the pathogen is going to win or the host is going to win and clear the infection. And we study a model organism which is called salmonella. It's responsible for typhoid disease in humans, for example, or so gastroenteritis. It's a, quite a range of disease, but it's also a formidable model pathogen, a model organism, because it's very easy to manipulate, and we can play quite a few tricks to understand how it works and how it interacts with the host. So I studied microbiology, and I did a PhD on the interaction between Messiah meningitis and human cells. And then I did a postdoc on Salmonella, Typhimerium, and how it interacts with macrophages. And now I have my lab on Salmonella. How did you decide to specifically work in this field of host pathogen interaction? Apart from that you did your PhD with it, do you find any specific reasons of why it's so interesting to work on this? Well, I'm fascinated by bacteria in general, so I suppose I could have studied fundamental bacteriology without the implication of the host. But I was always getting, during my lecture, extra excited when it was about the interaction with the host and the idea that you can use a pathogen to learn more about the host and vice versa, to me, is very fascinating. So is that a relationship, right, between the host and the pathogen? Yes. And when we also maybe think a little bit about that bacteria are not just pathogens on us, we are also host of bacteria that are not pathogenic. So these relationships are actually very relevant and very spread and very present, right? So by studying host and pathogen interactions, we might even also understand how the non-pathogenic bacteria relate to their host. Perhaps. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Yes. So are you directly working with uh, topics that touch on antimicrobial resistance? So I think that, yes, this is what I'm doing definitely nowadays, and, but that happened a little bit by accident because, as I said, I was really interested in host pathogen interaction. And what we discovered studying how salmonella interacts with the host is that part of the interaction consisted in salmonella not proliferating and not dividing a lot in the host, but remaining in a non-growing state, which was thought to be quite unusual for pathogenic bacteria. 
and that had the side effect of making these bacteria tolerant to the antibiotics, so unable to be cleared by antibiotics despite the absence of antibiotic resistance, conventional antibiotic resistance. And so this is what got me into antimicrobial resistance. We call this phenomenon persistence, the fact that these non-going bacteria aren't killed by the antibiotics. Here we actually introduce a new concept that we haven't talked about before, because we talk a lot about antibiotic resistance. That means these bacteria cannot be affected by the use of an antibiotic. But in this case, uh, in generally, when we talk about resistance, it's because there are intrinsic reasons why they cannot be killed by the antibiotic. So mutations, for example, the presence of certain enzymes, uh, that they can break out the antibiotic, so on and so forth. But in this case, we are not talking about resistance, but persistence, because they should actually be killed by the antibiotic. There's no reason why they shouldn't be killed, but we don't see an effect. Can you just maybe perhaps explain a little bit more, in general terms, persistence, what it is? Yes, so I think it's best defined by comparing it with resistance. So when you have antibiotic resistance, as you said, you have mutations that allow the bacteria to grow in presence of the antibiotics. The antibiotics not only doesn't kill them, but these bacteria can grow in presence of the drug. While persistent bacteria are bacteria which don't have any of these genetic modifications, they can't grow in presence of the drug, they are simply phenotypically tolerant to the drug, so the drug cannot kill them. And for bacteria, the best way to achieve that is to stop growing. Bacteria which don't grow are killed much less efficiently by antibiotics. And so if bacteria enter into a non-growing mode, antibiotics won't kill them. And what are the situations or reasons why these bacteria might go into these non-growing modes? Yes, so transiently bacteria in a given population, there's always part of the population that will enter into this growth arrest mode. It can happen spontaneously on very, very rare occasion if all the environment is favorable to the bacteria. However, when the bacterial populations are stressed, that happens a lot more and the bacteria enter into this protective mode when they are no longer trying to multiply very fast, but they are just trying to survive and they do that in an ongoing mode. What kind of stresses are we talking about? So multiple stresses have been described to lead to that. Starvation, for example, is a very important one but this is how I got into it. The interaction with the host is a combination of stresses imposed by the host immune system on the bacteria to try and get rid of them. But these stresses lead the bacteria or part of the bacteria in the population to enter into this growth arrested mode. And then not being able to be killed by the antibiotic treatment. And when they response. are in that state, they are probably more resistant to the host immune killing mechanisms but also uh, the side effect is that they are also really tolerant to the antibiotics. So there is like a synergy of uh, being able to survive the state they are in because the host cannot kill them, but the antibiotic cannot kill them either. So they have more chances to, yes. to then start growing again. Yes, so these, these bacteria have the remarkable ability to survive at the same time the host defense mechanisms and the antibiotics. Quite fascinating, interesting. Very I agree, interesting. yes. Yes. <laughs> I would like to maybe talk a little bit about your experience on this topic with other uh, researchers and other people working on AMR. How does your results and your conclusions on this topic coincide or not coincide with what other people are doing? Or you feel that there is some sort of controversy or so on and so forth? So I think there are two main things. When people talk about AMR, definitely resistance genetic resistance comes to mind first 
And there's a little bit of resistance in the community to accept that persistence is definitely a component, an important component of AMR. But I think that awareness is increasing, definitely. And the other thing is that the field of persistence is rather controversial. I think it's because it's a new field. It involves still a few players and we are really in the infancy of the field. And so everything is almost left to be discovered. So everyone has an opinion, but to be frank, we don't really know much about it yet. Perhaps also because it's a little bit more complex to study because when For example, you study resistance, then you are able to see a mutation or you are able to see an acquired genetic element that equals directly to producing an enzyme or producing a pore that will pump out the antibiotic. So you actually see a cause consequence directly. But when it's persistent, to me, it seems like it might be a little bit more difficult to actually study it and find the reasons of why a bacteria might be persistent rather than resistant. Yes, you're right. I think so. persistence was discovered about 70 years ago, but for a very long time, nothing has been going on about them. I think the main reason for that, besides the fact that everyone was focusing on resistance, was that uh, technically these persistence remained elusive for a very long time because we are talking about a transient phenotype. So a bacterium is not a persister, will become a persister and will come out of that state. And if you don't have a handle on that, you know, you can easily miss the window during which it's a persister. And the other thing is that we are talking about a small population. There's heterogeneity in the concept of persistence as opposed to antibiotic resistance where an entire population will be resistant. In the case of persisters, we are talking about a few bacteria amongst a world of susceptible bacteria. So if I sum up, there are two main technical reasons why it's been difficult to study persistence. We're talking about a small population of bacteria and we're talking about a transient phenotype. Yeah, I see the tricky part there and why might be a little bit. And also, I mean, we, we know that science tends to be very traditional in a way when there are some concepts that are very well established then you try to find how new knowledge coming in can actually coincide and actually be in the same that both things would actually happen for real and they are both true but sometimes if they clash too much or it, it takes time right like yes. things are not fast in science generally yes. So in your experience, your time working on AMR research and uh, learning about AMR, what do you think perhaps is missing? What do you think should we actually study more or should be put more attention to? Well, it might not surprise you that I will say that the interaction with the host to me is a very essential component of AMR and that has been neglected too much in my opinion so far. When new drugs have been, or when screens have been carried out to find new drugs, for example, these screens happen on bacteria that were grown in laboratory media instead of during interaction with the host. And we know that the interaction with the host is going to change dramatically how the bacteria are susceptible to the drugs or to which drug even the bacteria are going to be susceptible. So definitely adding a component of trying to understand AMR or trying to find new drugs when the bacteria are interacting with the host is key. So do you think that perhaps this could be solved by introducing more clinical studies with animal models early on in the phases of drug discovery instead of leaving it for much later? Because at at this moment, of course, there's a lot of animal model testing, especially to test, for example, toxicity, because this is a very 
of course, key things. If you make a very good drug, but then it's just going to kill the person you're going to give it to, of course, you cannot use it. But perhaps they should put a little bit more emphasis of running clinical trials where you actually look at the efficacy of uh, the drug in combination with the host and the infection itself, right? So the model of infection, whether it's an animal model or a cellular model, should come earlier, in my opinion, in the process, not only when it's time to test for the toxicity of the drug, but when it's time to test for which drug you're going to select. Yeah, I see. I see what you mean. Yeah, definitely. That's a good point. So if we move a little bit forward, this is a question that we tend to ask all our uh, invited speakers. We are curious to know about what do you think is most misunderstood in your field? Something that you come across over and over again that people might not understand well or they might have a preconception that makes them not to understand it in the proper way. In the field of persistence, you mean? Or the field you are uh, trained in and working in. Yeah, if there's anything that can come to mind. Apart from that point that we already talked about, that persistence and resistance, they have an ongoing fight there. I think that the most important question maybe on persistence and we've all focused a lot on how persistors are formed, how they survive, how they can regrow, and it's very important and we should keep doing that. But there's one thing that we haven't answered yet, is how important these persistors are when it comes to the recalcitrance of an infection. We actually don't know how big players they are in AMR. Right, because, I mean, as a general public, many times when you go to get, uh, you have an infection, you go to the doctor and they give you you know, 10 days of penicillin for a strep throat, let's say, is now, it's good that the public knows, oh, you need to finish the course of antibiotics mm -hmm. because the doctor told you it's 10 days, even if you feel good, you are still having clear out the infection, with the idea that if you take too short of an antibiotic treatment course, then the persistent bacteria, should there be any, you stop taking the antibiotics and then there's no antibiotics anymore, so they can start growing again and give a what you say, recalcitrant or secondary infection. Is that so? Is there research that shows that that can be true? I'm not convinced about that, actually. Uh, it, it might not be very popular to tell people it's super important to finish your course of antibiotic. But what's important to get across, though, is that even if people finish their course of antibiotics, it can happen that an infection relapses, and they shouldn't feel guilty about that. It's not necessarily that they have a bad environment or bad genes or bad behavior that makes them more susceptible to new infections, or it's not that they didn't take their treatment correctly, is that even if everything is done perfectly, antibiotics often fail, even in the absence of antibiotic resistance. Mm -hmm. And so that has to be recognized, definitely, by the clinicians, yeah. and the public needs to be aware of that, yes. Yeah, this is a very important topic. We hope that uh, our listeners, even if they know a little bit about that, they can now maybe think about it next time that they might get an antibiotic treatment course and for any infection. Yes, and I think they can make the point to the practitioner as well that I'm coming back, I've already had that infection three months ago or three weeks ago. It's definitely important. Mm -hmm. So we're kind of getting up to the end of our interview. I would like to ask you if there's anything in particular that you would like to tell our audience, anything about your work or anything about, I would say, your visit here, but you just arrived. Sometimes we do these <laughs> interviews after you've been here for a while. So, well, I want to say that the idea of this podcast is amazing. To me, it's fantastic. And I hope that people learn a lot and that they enjoy what they learn and that it will promote uh, excitement about science in general in the young listeners. 
and awareness in the public in general. Thank you very much. That's a very beautiful way to wrap up the interview and to finish. Thank you so much, Sophie, for being with us today. Thank you, Eva. Thank you. Hi, welcome back from the interview. Jenny, what are your thoughts uh, about this interview? So I really like this interview. It was really nice to hear from Dr. Helene. Um, she's a really good speaker on the topic, and I really enjoyed her talk as well when she was here. But it is a, an interesting topic for sisters. It, it's a little bit of a controversial topic in our field, uh, and it's a very science-heavy topic. So maybe we need to go through it a little bit again and talk about what persisters are exactly yeah it's a quite uh, biologically heavy concept right yeah, like, yeah and it can be, be it can be to, confusing to what's... understand what persistence versus resistance is although exactly. i have to say that i think sophie does a wonderful job explaining Absolutely. this very very difficult yeah. concept the first time that i actually listened to her talk it was almost a year back in paris in a conference and i was really like i couldn't stop listening to her talking yeah. about the topic because she's so clear and she of course presents really good science as well mm -hmm. so the whole talk was overall very exciting and very enjoyable and i'm happy that we got to have her here to explain yeah. this this difficult concept also for our audience in the podcast i had the same experience i got the chance to hear her in stockholm uh, last june and it was just she was one of the best speakers in the whole meeting and it was <laughs> yeah, great. Yeah, we kind of agree on that, right? Like we, we, you and I, we really yeah. appreciate uh, good communication yes. skills, right? So <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's good. Um, but so, like you said, uh, Dr. Helene had an excellent explanation, but we can maybe take it again. So what's the difference between a persister and a resistant bacteria? A persister and a resistor, can we say that? <laughs> I want to, yeah. but that feels like it's more confusing. Yeah, a persistence versus resistance, yeah. So yeah. What, what are the main differences and why does it happen? What does it involve? Yeah. Uh, well, I, I guess she really pointed out a main difference between a persistor bacteria and a resistant bacteria is that persistors are actually not growing bacteria, mm -hmm. whereas a resistant bacteria has the ability to be able to grow in the presence of antibiotics. The persistor, in order to be tolerant to this antibiotic, it just kind of freezes. Mm -hmm. There is no growth. And it's kind of a, a state that these bacteria enter into where they're dormant, pretty much. They're not growing and they're not really doing very much, but they are able to then start growing at a later time. After, say when there's yeah. no more, when the antibiotic isn't present anymore or... Uh, when in, the conditions are better yeah, overall. It's not just antibiotics. There can be persistence to other situations, which is one of the things that Dr. Helene brought up was that this is a metabolic condition, so like a, a state that the bacteria can be in that kind of comes from something else, right? That it's a... Yeah, it's, it, it is a state that the bacteria goes into because it's responding to something that is happening in the environment. Yeah. So in this case, the persistence or that state, that metabolic state mm -hmm. happens when the bacteria face some sort of stress. Mm -hmm. um, like imagine yourself, if you are going to go under stress, you start taking different uh, behaviors, for example. Yeah. Well, this is the same thing with the bacteria. They are faced with a stress and then they go into this metabolic state, mm -hmm. which basically freezes them. They are not growing. This allows them to overcome that stress situation. In this case, she was here presenting that the stress is basically the body trying to take over the infection. Yeah. And then... As a side effect, almost, then they also don't get affected by the antibiotic treatment. Mm -hmm. So this is not something that happens because of the antibiotic is there. 
No. Although in antibiotic treatment in itself could potentially be a stress, but in this case we are talking that the body is putting this bacteria under such a stressful situation to try to get rid of it because the body is actively trying to get rid of the infection. Yeah. That these bacteria are like, oh, th- we arm up now. We need to be, yeah, tolerant to this situation. Mm-hmm. We need to try to to not get killed by the immune system. And then this state also allows them to be tolerant to the antibiotic treatment. Yeah. And there's a lot of work, more work that needs to be done also, which is one of the things that Dr. Lane is working on, like understanding why did the bacteria enter this state? How do they enter this state? How is this Do they al- always enter in this state, yeah, right? Because this is a enter the question state. that came to my mind. Does it happen ev- in every single infection? Yeah. Because in every single infection, the body is actually trying to get rid of the, of the infection. So... Uh, but I think what she actually mentioned, uh, this op- our listeners don't get too worried that, yeah. oh, every time we have an infection, I'm going to have tolerant bacteria on me. This is a transient state. This is yeah. something, it's more about probabilities that it will happen in, a, in some bacteria within the infection, mm-hmm. not, of course, the whole infection. So I want to point this out, that it's, it's still more work is needed yeah. to know. But, of course, not in every single infection instance there is going to be this tolerance playing a role or even having an effect into the clearance of the infection. Mm-hmm. So it'll be fun to hear future work from Dr. Lane as well. Hopefully mm-hmm. she can come back and update us a little. But yeah. one of the things that, so this is one of the reasons why this is a controversial topic is because there's an idea that maybe this is a lab phenomenon. So something that we mainly only see in lab settings that we see these dormant cells that aren't killed by antibiotics. Uh, but so Dr. Helene's work is really helpful there because it shows that it's this is a clinical aspect of it and it kind of brings in another side of it. And it's still, I mean, there's a lot of work still to be done. This is still a... Jan, well, Jan, even though she she pointed out that these first instances of persistence were kind of documented 70 years ago, yeah. which is almost when antibiotics were started mm-hmm. to be used, but uh, still is very young mm-hmm. especially the clinical side of it so a- actually seeing this in cell models and in How patients work, and yeah. that sort of thing mm-hmm. all of that is much newer because we have new technology so we can actually see these things yeah because it's a challenge right well, yeah we, it's, she, a, it's a we huge pri- challenge mention it like resistance you kind of you know, there is a cause and there's an effect mm-hmm. you have a resistant uh, variant and then you see that they can survive yeah but this being so transient being just a sub part of the population mm-hmm. of bacteria increases the challenges of yeah. uh, studying it and understanding it. Yeah, so it'll be in- interesting to see like how this field gets cleared up in the next in the, in the future. Yeah. Hopefully there's there'll be more work on it that kind of clears up some of these these questions that we still have about it. Um but there was another thing that Dr. Lane mentioned that I thought was Yeah. Uh, a useful thing to talk more about. So. And especially for our audience that are not really working on antimicrobial resistance yeah. and they think that they like all of us face infections sometimes and they yeah. have to take antibiotics here and there. So it's a concept of uh, do you need to take the whole course of antibiotic when the doctor tells yeah, that exactly. the doctor tells you or not? And this was something that kind of came up as a like public discussion. I don't remember exactly how long ago, but it, I mean the last year or two or so, mm. I mean it's been something that's been talked about and also in uh, general media as the well. Media, yeah. yeah. Uh, if it's really necessary to take a full course of antibiotics, if you start feeling, say, you got antibiotics for seven days and you feel better after two, should you keep taking your antibiotics for the rest of the week? Yeah. But 
there's been kind of arguments back and forth on this that, I mean, of course, there are cases where an infection gets cleared and then you're unnecessarily taking antibiotics. That might be also affecting your normal flora yeah, and giving exactly. you side effects that are not, you know, And releasing appreciated. antibiotics into the environment. When we're taking antibiotics, yeah. a lot of it is released, yes, released. out of the body mm-hmm. as fully functioning antibiotics. So it's like kind of the balance, right? Yeah. Do you continue taking it? And then there's some cases, and then this is extra relevant right now because it was actually World TB Week on the 24th of March. So that was TB quite yes, recently. in tuberculosis. Tuberculosis, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's a shorthand I maybe shouldn't use. <laughs> uh, World TB Day, I mean. Yeah. I said, so. Yeah, so World TB Day. So World Tuberculosis Day was on the 24th of March. So it's a recent thing. And tuberculosis is one of those cases where you really need to take antibiotics, even if you feel better. And and it's also a case where the antibiotic treatment is really long. Yeah. Like majority of people are used to like, yeah, you got a UTI, you get an antibiotic for five, seven days, you mm-hmm. get a strep throat, you get the antibiotic for 10 days. But here with TB, we're talking about two months treatment. I think it's nine months treatment if you have open TB and six months if it's latent. Yeah. So, so. I mean, it's months and you don't feel good these antibiotics are usually quite harsh you have to take several different antibiotics at the same time yeah Yeah. it's it's really tough on the body and there's obviously a will to not take the antibiotics once you start feeling better especially if you're a patient that's being treated for a latent infection you were never felt sick so maybe it, it it's really difficult to motivate that you have to take the antibiotics but tb is one of those cases where it's very very hard to actually treat the infection and these and long term antibiotics treatments are really necessary and not fulfilling the treatment and then having to go back and continue the treatment later increases your risk of developing resistant TB because TB is one of those cases where resistance develops in the patient. Yeah. Which is why we have to take multiple antibiotics. Which is not the case for all infections. No. But in this case, it's extra relevant. Yeah. You're talking about like we need to avoid the situation that you actually allow for the bacteria to accumulate and select for the mm-hmm. resistance that happens in the patient. And this is because the bacteria are growing in the body for such a long time that yeah. the selection for the resistance happens within the patient itself. Yeah. So from what I've understood, a lot of the, the, the run out from this discussion was basically there are cases where you could stop taking the antibiotic once you start feeling better. But it's really hard for the patient to know was it that bacteria? bacteria? Was it that yeah. infection? Was it this situation? And am I really feeling better all the way? Like, is it just that your cold feels better, that your so- your fever goes down? What is it that's the marker that the infection has been cleared? Every case from every case differs, and mm-hmm. we need to be careful. So that's what the conclusion was, basically. It's, it's too hard to know all the cases unless if you're a trained doctor. And then you might as well have to ask your doctor. So it was based, the, the final conclusion, which is what we often come to when we talk about these things, was listen to your doctor's recommendation. If they say you can stop when you feel better, do it. Do it. Yeah. But if they say take the full treatment, take the full treatment. Do do exactly how, as yeah. your licensed physician tells you to. <laughs> of course, this is, this is obvious, but we wanted to just yeah. like discuss about it and, and explain why. Because it's why. important to know the reasons why. Yeah. I mean, that helps us make these decisions. I mean, it's easy to think... We, uh, I, I know, decisions, right? I know so. microbiologists who know this that work with antibiotic resistance that didn't fulfill their antibiotic treatments and then had to take new medication later. Mm-hmm. You can know all the facts and not Still do not the right work thing. <laughs> yeah. True. But it's it's nice to think about it because then that makes you think another time when you're actually in that case. And be aware of what is happening. Yeah. Right? When, exactly. Yeah. Okay, so I think it was very good to talk about this topic and even though it is Yet still, be, among scientists, a yeah. little bit controversial topic. I think that Sophie makes a wonderful case for why this is important, how we can relate to EMR, and mm-hmm. having 
really good in vivo data in yeah. vivo in vitro with cells in vivo we mean like we actually clinical setting yeah so i'm very very happy that we could actually have her and talk about this here mm-hmm. Uh, and we hope you took something from the discussion. It's always fun to talk about these things a little bit more in depth. Yeah. Uh, but now we'll move on to news. Hi, welcome to our news section. Today we have here with us Jenny Jackman to comment a little bit of what uh, has been published out this month that is uh, we think is relevant to talk about. So, Jenny, can you tell us about the first uh, item we want to talk about today, which is actually a research manuscript? Yeah, uh, so it's a manuscript of a letter to the editor, I believe, that was accepted into the journal Clinical Microbiology and Infection. Um, it was accepted on the 10th of March, 2019, and it's called Impact of CLSI and UCAS Breakpoint Discrepancies on Reporting of Antimicrobial Susceptibility and AMR Surveillance. I guess the first thing we should kind of explain what is CLSI and UCAST. Yes, CLSI stands for Clinical Laboratory Standards Institute, and it's and UCAST stands for European Committee for Antimicrobial Susceptibility Testing. And I think UCAST is the name says exactly what it does. Yeah, they're a committee that sets like the what is a resistant bacteria, what's not a resistant bacteria, how do we do these tests, kind of standardizing how clinical labs should perform these tests. And CLSI, then it will be kind of like the American counterpart yeah. to UCAS. So UCAS exactly. is actually the European one, and CLSI will be the American one. Mm-hmm. There are also some other differences between them, but we just wanted to say that one is uh, standardizing the testing in America and the other one in the European mm-hmm. side. And a lot of people, I mean, are, from what I've understood, countries outside of the EU, the European Union or Europe, and the U.S. kind of pick which one they want to use. But this, of course, leads to an issue since we don't have a global... Um, Unified system. Yeah, we don't really have... We haven't agreed as a group on one system. And there's... So there's different cutoff values. We, like this bacteria... The same bacteria could in one part of the world be considered resistant and another part of the world be considered sensitive. Yeah, because this is this actually... what This article, what it's talking about is that uh, in Vietnam... They were actually thinking of changing systems. Mm -hmm. And before changing systems, they did an analysis of how changing this system would actually impact the classification of the different isolates that they found in the clinics. And what does the result say? So they were testing three bacteria, um, E. coli, which a lot of people probably recognize, Klebsiella pneumonia, and Pseudomonas aeruginosa. And these are some of the three more common bacteria that can be resistant to many different antibiotics and be treated with many different antibiotics. So that's one of the reasons why they tested these. And then what they did was they ha- they're currently using CLSI and they were considering switching to UCAST. UCAST in general has, we would say, stricter values. They have lower limits to what's considered to be resistant bacteria. And they kind of want to see what the general effect would be. And for most antibiotics, it wasn't a huge effect. But for some very important antibiotics, there was an effect. So Some very important combination of pathogen with antibiotics, exactly. which is actually the most the uh, more important, the more part, important yeah. part. Uh, so ciprofloxacin uh, with some of these gram-negative, the E. coli and Klebsiella, that combination led to a significantly higher proportion of resistant bacteria. And that can affect a lot of things. And the, one of the things that they mentioned in this article was specifically how the clinicians decide to diagnose and treat patients will change based on this, according to their guidelines as they are now. 
if it's resistant, they treat with a different antibiotic. Well, as they're doing now, the same bacteria they would treat with this antibiotic. So that's one of the things that would change. Uh, and another problem is they, of course, do AMR surveillance, which is great. That's part of the whole process that we need to do to take care of the antibiotic resistance problem. But this kind of what they call an artificial change, if they change systems, would be misleading. It would look like they suddenly have a big increase in resistance. Well, nothing has changed except at this time point, except changing systems. So it, it's kind of a question of what, what should we do? And this in, is in a, in, a, in a sense, like perhaps they would want to switch to a system that is a little bit more restrictive in the use of antibiotics, because mm -hmm. if you have a system that will tell you a bacteria is resistant at a lower point, you would avoid misusing antibiotics. But as you said, then when you report the proportion of resistance strains that you have in the present in the country, then it would show like you have a much bigger problem that you yeah. perhaps have. And it's one of these things that, I mean, they aren't the first group. This isn't the first paper to say that we really need to... Uh, they actually like, mentioned like 20 papers yeah, they looked into, papers. and 19 actually pointed out these discrepancies between yeah. the systems. And it's not, it's, it's like the reason why I found this paper was because uh, this was another conversation on Twitter. People were talking about like, it, it's time we need to, that we need to, we need to harmonize these clinical breakpoints so that it's the same wherever you are whatever you're doing. Also, because once once you start, the surveillance part is not only reporting, you know, the percentage of resistance strains that are present, mm -hmm. but also the surveillance should allow comparisons between countries yeah. to understand how the, the strains move, how the, how the situation is. And if mm -hmm. we have different countries that are using different systems, we might introduce artificial errors and, and uh, miscalculations yeah. uh, within it. Uh, this is actually very interesting because uh, 10, 15 years ago, actually in Europe, every country had its own system and its own really? laboratory of reference. Yeah, I was just researching a little bit about this. And then UCAS, what it actually wanted to is to then unify and harmonize within the European region these uh, susceptibility testings and breakpoints. So perhaps now the next step is actually making such a committee, but at a global level that yeah. can actually uh, work on getting these uh, guidelines that all countries can use mm -hmm. to to really get the thing going. Yeah, because as it is right now, it's very strange. I mean, aside from this paper, to show some clear examples, one of the antibiotics that I work with the most is tagacycline. It's a last-line antibiotic, and it's quite important, and it's used around the globe in patients that are dying. So, it, I mean, you need to get that right. You need to know when you can use this antibiotic. And the difference between the UCAST breakpoint, so what's considered resistant in UCAS system, and what's considered resistant in CLSI system is 16 times. It's 0 0.5 in UCAST, 0 0.5 milligrams per liter antibiotic, and 8 milligrams per liter in CLSI. That's 16 times different, like 16-fold difference. It's, it's just insane to me that you can have that big of a difference. Yeah, I was actually asking resistant. asking around some of the more expert people yeah. we have that they know about these two systems that they've been working for a long time. And I was really asking the question that probably a lot of you are asking, why is there such a difference between yeah. the two systems? Why one might say 0.5 milligrams, where the other one might say 8? And this probably comes from historical reasons, because once something is really established, it takes really long time to change mm -hmm. it. And we must say that 
actually CLSI numbers are in the recent years getting closer to the numbers yeah. of UCA. So changes are happening, but of course this is something that takes time. Mm-hmm. So perhaps, yeah, if we are able to get this uh, new system, which actually will replace the both of them to work on a global level, then we can solve yeah. the problem. But at the same time, UCAS has actually lowered several of their limits to even lower. So Because they want to be more restrictive, right? Yeah. The lower the level, the less chance you are going to use an antibiotic when it might fail, mm-hmm. which will prevent the use of an antibiotic when it's actually not needed. Yeah. So, of course, there are things so to I, wait out there. For example, for tigacycline, I know UCAS lowered their limit at the beginning of this year because of issues with how much antibiotic will actually reach the site of infection in the patient, which makes it even more relevant for changing the CLSI number if any concentration that high that would be required to kill the bacteria we actually don't do anything, is not right? actually succeeding in the patient. Yeah. Uh, but, I mean, these things are very hard to, to change and to understand. It takes a lot of years and a lot of data to really understand, okay, what level of antibiotic is reaching this infection site? Which infections can we use this for? Where is, it, where is the antibiotic yeah, There's a lot of science Yeah, there's a lot involved, of yeah. really complex pharmacology that's difficult for me to understand, so yeah. I can imagine anybody that doesn't try to read it all the time. But we just wanted, yeah, we just wanted to mention that uh, there are differences, and yeah. these differences, even though they are changing, they might they might stay to be there for a while. Yeah. So this was an interesting paper looking at a, a problem that we all know about, but hopefully, mm-hmm. hopefully there'll be a global, yeah, harmonized. We, I system mean, there's soon. been so many global initiatives, and uh, yeah. one perhaps next step is to have a unified susceptibility. Yeah measures yeah exactly so Ava what did you find so uh, what I found actually is not a research paper per se this is actually a mainstream media paper published in the UK The Guardian and it was published on Sunday 24th of March so very very recently and I chose to talk about it because it is a great article that explains the natural science problem of resistance, of antibiotic resistance. And we wanted to mention that is a really good paper that I think, we think that all of you that are listening to us could read it and it's not that extent and it explains the main key problems of resistance yeah. and how it's they might written. be solved. It's really, really comprehensive. Yeah, it's written in a way that I think a lot of people can really get something out of it. It's not just... You have to know a background to really understand what they're talking it about. It is very like a standalone article uh, on resistance. But we also wanted to mention that it is very on the natural science side of the problem. Mm-hmm. And you know that you have been listening to us for a while, that we are always pointing it out how the resistance problem is not just a natural sciences problem, it's also a social problem, it's also an economic problem. So there's been a little bit of a conversation out there in Mm -hmm. social media. You've seen, Jenny? Yeah, I saw um, a lot of people were almost a little bit negative to it, but then they were reminded that this is actually a quite a well-written article for not having the target audience of experts in the field, (laughs) Um, that it's maybe a little bit too hopeful that natural sciences is going to solve all the problems. A lot of people were kind of missing this, that it's complex, you need to take care of the social aspect. Exactly what we talk about here all the time. All the time, yeah. The economic uh, yeah. models, uh, exactly. how we bring new antibiotics, how we take care of the existing antibiotics, uh, yeah. the stewardship uh, 
situation. But there was some criticism also against one of the examples that they bring up, a new antibiotic called uh, Texobactin. I'm probably pronouncing that completely wrong. But I think it's right. Texobactin. Close enough. Yeah. <laughs> Which um, it's not on the market yet. It's years away from being on the market. But it's kind of a, it's something that's come up in the field and it's quite hopeful because it's completely novel. I remember when that paper came out. Yeah. I was doing my PhD and we actually uh, had that paper for our journal club because, mm-hmm. I mean, it was amazing that they found a new compound, complete new action, yeah. mode of action, antibiotic. And the most amazing thing is that they claimed that resistance couldn't be developed to it, which yeah. is a topic that we're still not so sure about. No, but there hasn't been a lot of understood resistance to it even today from what I've understood. No, if you read actually in this, I really like it because in this article it uh, explains very nicely and in an easy way why resistance, if it ever were to develop to this antibiotic, it would be much more difficult. Yeah. And it's because this antibiotic actually targets the cell in two different pathways. Yeah. And of course, getting resistance to two different mechanisms at the same time, just by probability, it would be more difficult. So it's uh, nice that they actually point that out. Yeah. I actually remember in my master's, your old PhD supervisor brought this up for a journal club for us. Yeah, that probably then. was by the same time. Yeah, we it was probably around it. the same time. He was very excited about it. <laughs> yeah. I, I remember that. We were all very excited. And it, yeah. it's indeed a very wonderful thing that, uh, that it exists and that mm-hmm. they're actually you know, producing more yeah. and testing it and bringing it to more cell models, mice models, hopefully human trials at yeah. some point. But it's still some time to go. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the criticisms there was that this antibiotic probably won't be targeting some of the priority pathogens, like the one, the priority pathogen list that the WHO let, releases regularly. But I think that's a little bit too pessimistic. I mean, this antibiotic was found in a very creative way. Mm-hmm. It was discovered by looking at trying to grow bacteria that we usually can't grow in the lab. These and unculturable then, bacteria, yes, there are a lot of them. Dark matter of uncultural bacteria. 99% of yeah. all the species are non-culturable in the lab, which is a lot. <laughs> a lot, yes. So, I mean, it. of course it doesn't solve all the problems, but I think it's a good example of something actually progressing, and hopefully it will end up in the clinic and be useful for the bacteria it can treat. Yeah. yeah, good. But yeah, we, of course, will leave the links to these two articles that we just mentioned. Mm-hmm. And um, we really encourage you to read this Guardian article, especially because it's in a clear language and it's not very long. And yeah. I, I enjoyed it, even myself as a, you know, somewhat a little bit more knowledgeable in the topic. Still, I think it's really good. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being with us in this episode. And uh, we hope that you are going to be again with us in a month's time, right? Yeah, yes. in a month, yeah. Good. Thank well, you. Well, thank you. For more information about the Uppsala Antibiotic Center, please visit our website. You can find a link in the episode notes. You can also follow us in Twitter. Our handle is UAC underscore UU. This episode was brought to you by the AMR Studios, composed by Eva Garmendia, Jenny Jackman, and Po Chen Tang. And a big thank you to Henrik Nis for letting us use his song, Sound the Alarm. You can find a link to his Spotify in the episode notes.